Qui est le poète? Who is a poet? is a bilingual podcast in French and English. We reflect on the sacredness of this function and its essential mission for the collective with guest poets on the show. Poets from the past, present, and maybe future come for a visit to enlighten our perception of beauty, harmony, transcendence, and union. Their creative process and emotional journey into creation is also at the heart of our discussions. Welcome. My name is Muriel Mubingu, and I am a poet. Shane Meneer is the founder of Guerrilla Poets, a non-profit art collective with branches in the US and UK. A multi-talented poet who has embraced the leader in her, she is a creative coach a visual artist, a trauma-informed care instructor, and a TEDx speaker. She served on board of CCAG Arts Collective of Cornelius, North Carolina in 2017, and was the youngest poet to ever be inducted in the Poetry Council of North Carolina. Shane has been recognized as a national poet performing with Respect the Mike Slam team from 2017 to 2020. Her full-length poetry book, Road Hunger was recently published. In this episode of Qui est le Poète, Shane Meneer shared how she transcended inertia and violence and came out as a poet and a mentor to younger generations of poets and beyond. A cultural leader, she created a healthy and supportive community to help poets live in their truth. In this fluid conversation, we discuss the dangers of wrapping our identity into our art how a poet matures, fame, the natural need for validation, the power of detachment, and the poetic practice as a divine download. Qui est le poète is elated to have Shane Manier on the show. We are going to talk about your journey in poetry and how you came out a poet how you decided you would be a poet, was it a conscious choice or not? My philosophical obsession is inertia, passion, and harmony, because I think that the poet travels through those different states. And actually, it's not only what I think. There is a very, very old Hindu philosophical system that represents reality like that. So it's really interesting because poets are in tune with reality, but sometimes they're just not. And this causes a lot of problems. So we are going to talk about your journey with inertia and people denying your calling. Mm. Um, can you, can you, can you share that with us? How did you come out a poet and did you face a lot of denial from yourself first? And from society and people who are just negating your creative calling? That's a beautiful, beautiful question. And in the way that you worded it to, to really change the narrative of what it means to be a poet and how the, how the poetry journey gets started. So I love that you, that your angle and approach to like the poetic journey. I was always writing ever since I could remember. I wrote a poem when I was like five years old about werewolves. (laughs) 
like that was like my first poem. Transformation. Right. And it's funny because looking back, you know, I grew up in an alcoholic family and it was like from the get go, like that was a metaphor for how people can change, right? In in an alcoholic environment. And so instantly I was already thinking in metaphor and thinking in terms of expression because I think it was because I didn't have a lot of other kids to play with. I was surrounded a lot with the adults. So my my creativity kicked in as a way for me to express all these things I was seeing and experiencing but I didn't realize you know what poets were and like uh, and who they were even even until even until like middle school high school because you know you study some of the old classical greats you know when you're in elementary school and you're exposed to some of them but you don't really understand that there are poets today. <laughs> like yes. for some reason when you're a kid and you're in class, you think, oh, like poets were were like back in the day, you know, like they don't exist anymore. It's like they're extinct or something. Like, yeah. you know, like yeah. and that's just because that's the way, at least in America and in certain states in America, because it can vary state to state and teacher by teacher. But for the most part, I grew up traveling in many schools. It was just these are the the classical poets that you're going to study. And then that's it. We're going to move on, you know. But my dad was very supportive in my writing. And so was my mom. And I didn't even realize that it was a possibility until I got to high school and I saw Death Poetry Jam on HBO. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. what is this? What is <laughs> I was this? like, this is I was like, people do this? I was like, wait a minute, I want to do this. This this is what I do. And so I was so excited. I would stay up way past what I should, just waiting for Death Poetry Jam to come on. And I would I would watch that every single chance I got. And in my head, somewhere back back in the back of my brain, I was like, I'm gonna be on there one day. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna do that. And I still, like, I was in denial of myself. I was like, yeah, because I was going through, like, major depression and things like that in high school. And so I I didn't think that it would be a real reality for me because I didn't see myself having a a real future at that point. And then when I got to college, there was one open mic that was at our college, and I was terrified I wouldn't get up there and read. (laughs) And that was, that was when I was exposed to, oh, there's these things called open mics. Like you can, you can go and share your work and still did not, did not want to share. I actually remember my friends pushing me to share my poem and the shyest of all of us was actually the one who went up and shared their poem. <laughs> and the loud mouth who was me was like, no, I'm not going to do that. No. But it, yeah, it wasn't until I graduated college and started, to, I actually did start to go to open mics and my, my first open mic was so hilarious because I was terrified. I was shaking and I had spilt coffee all in my lap before I went up there. And so it was just a hot mess, <laughs> but I did it. And once I did it and realized that people were so supportive and that my, my words uh, like touch them in in some way I was just like oh okay nobody's gonna throw anything at me I survived this 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 actually felt good I'm gonna do it more and so I just kept showing up for myself and that was really the start of my my poetry journey like I 
I think that it's important for poets to be exposed to what's possible in order for them to expand their mind around what's the right step for them. Absolutely. Because there's so many avenues in poetry that you can take, but if you don't know what they are, then you you're confined to like, Oh, this is what it is. And this is my only option when that's not necessarily the case, you know? Yes. yes. I remember I really loved the way you put, you know, the, the, the poetic, the many poetic faces of the poet, it was just to me, it helped me a lot, actually, because I was, I was not in a bad phase. I had that a long time ago, but I was just lost because when I arrived in America, you remember I told you about that. I, I couldn't figure out how poets were doing what they were doing. To me, New York was a very vivid city and there were, you know, poets walking on stages and stuff like that. And I have never, I had never seen something like that before because in France, people don't do that. You know, people die. <laughs> they, 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 they're depressed. Poets are depressed really because if a big publisher, a major publisher doesn't support you, you're, you're not a poet. You don't even exist. So yeah. I was like, what, are, what is this? What is this place? So just like what you were talking about with Def Jam, with Def Jam poetry. I was like, is, is that possible? I mean, can you just be a poet and be the kind of poet that you want to be? If you are the exuberant poet, then it's, you're going to find your way. If you're a deep thinker, just like me, you know, the, the, the poet. The, the poet who loves, you know, solitude and, and, you know, thinking long and hard on problems. And then, yeah, that's, that's going to be your stuff. And it was just wonderful. And actually your uh, assessment of the poet's identity helped me a lot. So. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah. yeah so I, I wanted to point I, that out. I believe that like, and what you're saying about like the major publisher, that's so true in a lot of countries as well. Like I know in Ireland, there's a poet, his name is Adrian Rice and he's incredible and he's an incredible human being as well, but he's from Ireland and he, he talks about like, if you're over there, you can't, you cannot deem yourself a poet. Like you can't, like it's like, it is taken like in such high regard that it's, and not that America doesn't take poetry in such high regards uh, or us poets hold each other accountable. That's not necessarily the case. I just think that the expressionism of it is what's more important here than as opposed to accolades in other countries. Absolutely. Yes. You know, and I think that probably stems from the whole like, you come over here, you just do, you don't literally do whatever you want, but you know, there's that, there's that, that lure of America in that sense. And, and that's what I love about the poetry profiles that I do and the personality types of poets that I, I show for other writers is like, look, you have specific joy points to, to you that are different from other people. So if you try to mimic what another poet is doing, and let's say that poet is a historian personality type, like you're going to have an awful time. You are, and if you're a, like if you are a magician poet, which is more about atmosphere and about invoking a feeling and kind of compelling your audience, right? And you try to follow a historian poet path, You are going to have an awful time and you are going to be filled with imposter syndrome and depression and, and 
yeah, so you, you know, like knowing what your joy points are and how they connect to your creativity is so vital for us to not fall into the suffering myth, you know, the suffering artist myth and go down that path of depression and feeling like we're not worthy and feeling that our our work isn't worthy. And yes. and I think that knowing, you know, where your passions lie when it comes to poetry, like, do you want to be the activist poet or do you want to be, you know, in a classroom? Do you want to be on a stage? Do you want to work with other artists and, and create big, you know, plays and showcases, you know, things like that. Getting specific on what success and joy means to you is really, really the key because I've met poets and I always ask, like, now I've learned to always ask, like, are you achievement driven or are you more like exploratory driven? You know, like you want to uncover things within yourself and you're not too worried about, you know, publishing a book or doing a show. You know, you're more worried about, you know, being intimate in your work and the discoveries you can make there as opposed to, you know, making the achievements happen through those discoveries. And that, that's been a huge for me to realize just as a coach and ha and the difference between someone who is achievement driven and someone who is more like, no, this is, this is just my own healing journey I'm on. I'm not really interested in, you know, putting it all out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you you talked about passion, which is a perfect transition because poets have a lot of intense emotions. And and I was wondering what your emotional journey has been. We all go through crisis, like major life crisis. This is what I've observed. I saw it in dead poets' biographies and 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 you know poets who are still alive and participating in the poet artist survey. And so I'm trying to understand that. I'm writing a book about it. So it's more of a research thing because I think that there is something, there is a mystery about our creative calling we need to solve because that thing is dragging us down and, and it reaps humanity from genius and vibrant poets and beautiful literature, elevating art. And it's, so bad and it's too bad and we have to solve this so if the the question is too personal you don't have to answer but did you go through a major life crisis and 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 how how did you come out of it yeah so i i have my father died when i was in high school very unexpectedly i also experienced a lot of trauma as a a young youngster <laughs> and uh, i fully believe that the trauma I experienced actually led me to be prolific. So it's funny in a way because it's like that was a defense mechanism that has now become my superpower by hyper-focusing and de disassociating that my body was doing naturally to, sur to survive certain traumatic events. Yes. Um, now has become my superpower for being able to make connections everywhere and then everything okay. becomes a prompt. And so that's why I was able to be prolific. And I have, I've experienced, you know, my, my mother died about three years ago as well. And I wasn't ready for that. I, I grew up in a very violent atmosphere as well, because we grew up traveling and I was surrounded by the Hells Angels, which is a biker gang in America. And a lot of them worked for my father. And so I experienced a lot of violence as well. And 
it's interesting to me because I've been I've been on this this exploration of like trauma and how that affects people throughout my own healing journey, but also in other in others, because I, I deeply believe that you don't have to necessarily go through a traumatic event in order to suffer from depression or anxiety and things like that. So I, I always want to be careful when I when I talk about things like that, because I I feel like that's not a requirement to to have those challenges, those mental health challenges. However, I also I also feel like when it comes to poets, a lot of us start out trying to write our way out of hell. Like a lot of us start out because we're trying to self-therapy. We're trying to, to figure we're trying to process what's happening to us and what we can do about it and, and maintain our sense of identity in the chaos, you know, because I feel like when you write, you're discovering who you are and who you are not, what you're willing to put up with and what you're not. You know, it's it's kind of like bringing you back to center and figuring out, OK, how do I move forward through this? And I think a lot of us start there so that we can, you know, survive or go through whatever we're we're dealing with. And then after, you know, either, you know, we fall in love with writing and it involves or, you know, it's like we've associated it with healing so so deeply to our pain that we tuck it away until we need it again. And then it comes out later and then we're like, oh, okay, I still want to expand and explore this because it makes me feel good because maybe we're a little bit more mature. And so then you start a poetry journey, you know, later on in life because of that. But I think a lot of us start writing because we're hurting, you know, and the the, the challenge is to break out of that and write about other subjects. And that's something that a lot of my clients come to me for is like, okay, I'm ready to evolve into writing about other things, you know, and, and that's a whole nother discussion of why you keep writing about the same things and, and how you can break out of that. But, but I do, I feel like when it comes to the question of like, do poets have like strong emotions or, or do we all have strong emotions and, and poets are just more expressive about it. I like always feel like poets, especially poets who are on stage it's like they remind us what a human looks like, you know, it's like we are transparent, we are vulnerable enough to share these things. And so, yeah, it comes across a strong emotion. But I also wonder if it's just so many of us have been conditioned to believe that our emotions are bad. And so we must stifle them. Absolutely. In fact, this is my take in the Poetical Manifesto. I decided that this book would be free because it's it's a service to to poets and, and artists. And so that's my take. I believe that we carry in a sort of metaphorical way, but it becomes real. All the emotions, emotionality, that human beings, that non-poets, and it's not derogative or mean at all, cannot carry. It's too much. Emotions, humans have a lot of problems and trouble handling their emotions, but poets don't fear emotion. They don't fear emotional overwhelm. I mean, we thrive on it, but the problem is we also die out of it. It it hurts, but since it's stronger than us, when you, you talked about your your debut as as a stage poet, I, I smiled because you say, well, it was messy and and you know I was shy and I spilled coffee over myself, but it's like you did it anyway because there's something in us that pushes us to do it, to do this anyway, just to transcend the fear and 
and the judgment and just go there. So it's like we're on a mission, which is something that I love because I truly believe that poets, poetry is a superior genre. If you consider all the literary, uh, the artistic expression, expressions of, you know, not only the, the past century, but ever since art is art, there's always been a poet at the beginning of a movement, of an artistic movement. The Renaissance was actually Dante, and Dante was a poet, right? And, and, and Dante and Boccaccio, maybe. We don't really talk about Boccaccio in France because we don't like him. But uh, I think, <laughs> yeah, but I think he was a great poet and, and just a, this magnificent storyteller. And so, yeah, so poets always start movements and they want to reform culture at some point they do something because they're done with the status quo the surrealists which are my favorite kind of poets which is they did that they said okay we are done with logic and stuff and we want emotion we want raw emotion because we need to see what we are hiding and so Yes, this is what we carry. We carry this mission. We have this desire to serve. And it's a beautiful calling and a beautiful mission. And what she said is so right. At some point, we have to stop making this about ourselves. Although it is, right? It's, and this is the ambiguity of the poet, right? Yes, it's about you. But maturing is also realizing that at some point, it's not about you anymore. It has to be you in the beginning. But then, you know, if you want to serve and do this thing that, you, that I believe we're put on earth to, to, to do or meant to do, you just have to let go of your personality and interpersonality and relationships and passionate relationships with people and emotions and things and just be a poet and so yeah it's wonderful and the way you expressed it it's very touching for me you said something beautiful we write our way out of hell Mm -hmm. which is yeah which is exactly what we do it's exactly i I think too like it it's hard when i i don't know how it is there but like i know i i know around here we've had a lot of discussions about like you know, it feels, especially if you're on stage and you do a poem that's very vulnerable and talks about, you know, a traumatic event of your life. Yeah. There's something very powerful about it because you, it, to me, it's like the audience is witnessing you jump this milestone in like three minutes and come out the other end. And it's so inspiring and everybody, it, it fills everybody with the hope that and the belief in themselves that they can do that too, that whatever it is they're going through, they can come out of it the other end, you know? And, and I, for one, love doing those powerful poems like that because I do feel so powerful when I walk off stage. And I feel like I've, I've given the audience something like I have served them. I have given, I've instilled a seed or something in them that, is bravery, is courage, is hope, yes. you know, yes. and, and it is connection. Um, but we've had discussions here about like, well, can it also be harmful for the poet to keep doing those poems that are traumatic events? Yeah. And I always feel so, I always feel so torn about that because I feel like if, if the poet is doing it as a form of self punishment, 
as, you know, a form of almost like self-flagulation, right? Of like, I'm going to continue to do this poem because I don't think that I'm worthy of doing anything else. Yes. Then I think it becomes damaging, right? And I, but I don't think that doing those poems coming from a place of power and healing are are damaging whatsoever. So it's an interesting line to walk and to talk about, you know? But I also feel like, I feel like, when we start wrapping up our identity in our art too, that can be dangerous because I experienced that where I was equaling my worth to my work. So, and feeling like I had to rush in and save everybody, right? From <laughs> And that gets dangerous too, because then you start falling into martyr syndrome, which some poets, especially in, in, you know, the past has also fallen into and artists in general, like, especially when they're doing any emotional work and they see that it can save others and it can heal others, then they feel like they've failed, you know, their mission if they, if they don't reach a, a certain person. So my journey is also consisted of like how to separate myself healthily, like in these inner boundaries from who I am and who my, and what my work is, you know, it's it's beautiful because like yes we can write about ourselves and write about other people and it's still like me making a connection with whatever I'm witnessing so there's always like it's not just about me and it's not just about you it's about us you know yes. and that's beautiful but also knowing where your boundaries lie to where it's like when it's time to go home when it's time to put the pin down and and like this badge of honor this this like you know, this crew, not crusade, but like this mission of like, I'm going to save the world. And like, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it's like, sometimes you have to walk away, especially from opportunities, especially if you're a poet and you, you don't know the, the, the abundance that's out there. You can yeah. feel very much like, Oh, I have to do all of these things yeah. because if I don't, then people are going to forget my name or people are, I'm going to fall by the wayside. I'm not going to make it successfully, whatever success means to me. And that's not necessarily the case either. Yeah. And then you tack on social media and you see other poets doing certain things yeah. and you, and it's just, you know, it can start getting, so you have to be very clear on your why and, and, maintain that joy and that intimacy with your work so you don't play the comparison game because your voice isn't going to be the same as someone else's I feel like there's so many factors as an artist because you're sharing such vulnerable work that it's easy to fall into some sort of mental health category because it's you're constantly being vulnerable you're constantly being transparent you're constantly showing parts of yourself even if it's a poem about someone else it still came from you, you know? Sure. So it's, it, it is, it's like you have to continuously come back to why you're doing it and, and the joy of doing it, you of know? Doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And this conversation is so fluid because each time I think about the next question, you talk about it, you, you verbalize it, which is great. Uh, you said, yeah, they're, they're afraid people are going to forget their names. Fame is also another problem for poets because this is the era of fame. And and so we have this tendency to downgrade ourselves if people don't know our name, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, 
what do you mean you are not T.S. Eliot, so you don't exist? What do you mean right. I am not a Dante, I, I don't exist? So this is very detrimental to our creativity, our psychology, our emotional health, actually to everything, because we adopt all kinds of self-destructive behaviors because we seek recognition, and it's, it becomes stronger than the urge to create. That part, yeah. And it's so bad. And so I wanted to ask you if if you experience that, you know, the not enough until I am known and recognized I am not enough. And again, how have you overcome it? Yeah. That's such an important question that poets do not talk enough about, like especially here in the poetry community that I'm a part of, because I kind of like imposter syndrome comes up almost in every single conversation. Yes. And I, to me, like, yes, there have been days where I'm like, oh, my work is crap and I don't, but I know that it's not. I'm just frustrated at that moment. I personally have not fallen deep into that because I hold so tightly onto my why. And I, another reason is because when you're, when you're out here and you, you really sit down and you think about what you want as a poet. Yes. For some people, fame is not even a part of that. Me personally, what, what keeps me up at night is the idea that I am sitting on so much work that if I die tomorrow, right, somebody's going to come into this house and they're going to clean all my files out and all that work could go in the trash. That's what terrifies me. Not the fact that 50 years from now, I'm not going to be brought up in a classroom. That doesn't terrify me. What terrifies me is that 50 years from now, nobody has the opportunity to stumble upon my work in some local bookstore or something. Yes. You know what I mean? That's what scares me is the fact that my work could just go in the trash yeah. and that's it. So that's why I really am achievement driven of getting my books out and getting my albums out. Right. So but I had a beautiful conversation about fame with a poet from New Mexico, Zachary Kluckman, who runs a poetry uh, venue down there and brings in a lot of poets. Wonderful. I was talking to him about it and I was like, we complain in America, at least but we're spoken word, especially the style of spoken word has gotten pretty big. We complain about how teachers are not teaching modern poets and not really touching on spoken word, which that is starting to change. But it's still very segregated and very cut off. Yes. So we've talked about that, about how, like, okay, it's time to put Robert Frost away. The man's been dead for for years. You know, we talk about that. And then I had this, I had this thought, and I was like, Zach, think about it, about would eventually, even if we became famous, we would be that. It would be time to pass it on to the next person. Like, are we so wrapped up in our ego that we think that people have to study me for the rest of eternity no (laughs) like no eventually somebody's gonna be like I am so sick of reading Shane Maynard's work in class I am just (laughs) done with this poet you know what I mean like like so that the concept of fame to me is interesting it's like well why why do you want the fame like to me I just want I want to touch the people I can touch and I want to spread as much love and hope and courage as possible yes and all I need to do to do that is just continue to show up for myself. 
sure. regardless of who all's in the room, regardless of how old I am, because that's another thing, especially with spoken word. I've heard poets be like, oh, well, I ain't getting any younger and I can't do this forever. And I'm like, why can't you? Why can't you? Yeah. That's yeah. So it's knowing, knowing again, your why and why you continue to show up for yourself. Like I've, I've gotten pretty well known locally and in a few other States, but it wasn't like, I don't think I've ever signed up for an event and been like, Oh yeah, this is going to be the one that makes me global. <laughs> you know, I don't, <laughs> it's, that's not ever been <laughs> the thought in my head. Yeah. And I, I feel like you can get pretty wide known, at least locally and at least wherever you are, as long as you continue to show up. Yes. If you just continue to show up, people will start recognizing you and you'll get more opportunities. Sure. And whether or not fame ends up happening for you, I feel like if, if you do want to go that route, there's nothing wrong with it. Just know why you want it, yes, you know, right. and, yeah. and make the steps like you, you're not going to get on the Oprah show unless you continue to submit, you know, a request to be on there. And it might be the 200th time you ask, you know, but like you have to make sure you're moving in the steps to where that's going to happen instead of, you know, sitting in your hotel room being petty because nothing's happening for you you know <laughs> like so it's like it's really like getting realistic about what what steps you're taking in order to make what you want possible too yeah sure. so yeah fame fame is interesting and it can be dangerous as well because I when I have a blog about that like I was getting very well known locally in the beginning to the point where I'd be walking down the street and somebody in a car would be like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like people were taking selfies with me and I, I'll never forget. I went to um, another city to get sushi and there was this table across from me and these girls were very clearly making fun of me because I, I was not, girl, I was looking rough. I had like sweatpants on or something. And I was like, I was just chilling that day. It was and, you know, some some people can be like that. And I and I remember getting really upset. And the thought in my head was, do you know who I am? Do you know? <laughs> and then I was like, well, who in the hell do I think I am? Like, it's nice. And so I had I had a whole like existential crisis yeah. about that. I had to sit down and be like, oh, wow, I did not expect me to go there mentally. And then I had to deal with that. Like, wow, this is really this has really gotten to me and I had to step, I had to step back and be like, Ooh, yeah. you know, think about this. Yeah. So. Yeah. It happens. Yeah. It happens. And it's wonderful that you are able to observe that in you because most of us, some of us, I would say, I mean, the famous ones, they don't, I mean, it's that part of themselves, you know, the, the garden is gone. Right. Uh, yeah. He or she is completely gone, and so they 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 feed the recognition. And if they don't have it on a daily basis, or regularly, or on social media, or on TV, whatever, they don't exist. They feel like they don't exist. Yeah. And so this, besides the the fact that it it hurts your calling, I think your craft. It just makes you a despicable human being. You're like, yeah, because you lose, 
you really do lose a part of your, your humanity because yes. it feels like, you know what it feels like? It feels like the, the photo in Back to the Future where Marty McFly is just like fading away. Like I, yes. I know that, and Martyr Syndrome lives there too. Yes. That's where Martyr Syndrome lives as well. Because I remember, I remember being on stage so much that I was comfortable. I even have a poem about it where I was comfortable being naked on stage, metaphorically, of course, yes. like, <laughs> um, then I was just in normal day-to-day life. And that's when I realized like, wow, I, I need to get intimate with my work again. Yeah. I am relying so heavily on an art, uh, on an audience's energy that yeah. I don't even know my own work anymore. That's you know, true. like I can't, I can't descend you. I can't decipher like if I like this poem or not. And that to me was like my, my aha moment where I was like, oh, I need to get intimate m- with my work again. Because yes, if you're, if you're in perform, well, what's called performance, I'm using quotations here. If, if you're in like spoken word and you you rely on opportunities to book you to come, you know, share your work. Yes, you do want to pay attention to what the audience is connecting with. Yes. But you also have to maintain that intimacy with your work of what do you like? What do you like? You know? Sure. And, and so that's always key too. I've, I've had discussions with poets as well as like we, about poets who are highly successful, who are miserable yeah. because they're not there because of that. Yeah. And one of my friends who is also a Guerrilla Poets member in our nonprofit is his name in the group is Nemo Soon. And he talks about, he talks about validation and, and needing, needing that. He said, <laughs> this is really, this is really amazing. I, I love that he said this. He said, everyone needs validation. The only people who don't are sociopaths and we don't want to be men. And it's like, <laughs> I love that he grants permission that like, yes, we do need, we do need someone to be like, you know, yes, I sign off on this. You are, please keep doing more of this. We need to know that our work has connected in some way with someone. But when we lean so much onto that, that it becomes, we can't even write unless someone, it, it's a codependency is what it is. It, it is. becomes codependent. And then that, that can ruin any success that you make. Yes. You know? Yeah. And, and um, I, this is something that I have observed. I call it emotional greed. It's like other people, since they they believe because when you you admire a poet or just you know you just leave your house and go to a poetry reading you there is something in you that considers that you cannot do what this person is doing so in the beginning it's naive and it's not hurting anyone and it it's good because you want to expose yourself to beauty and truth and 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 depth and and it's wonderful but the more non-poets and non-creators do that, the more they settle in the position of a consumer. So they want you to perform, and you better perform. If you don't perform the way they expect you to perform, it's like you're dead to them. And so the poet or the artist is caught up in this crazy situation where people want him or her, but they don't. Mm, they want yeah. him or her and they want him in the particular, you know, area, existential area or performance they have decided he or she should be in. And so when you decide that you're just going to do your thing, because after all, it's your calling, 
they don't like it. So, and I think that the, the great, the great sacrificial beings of our era are pop stars. I mean, pop singers. Some of them are poets. Some of them are frauds. A lot of them. But some of them are poets in disguise. And so, I mean, these guys, they, they, they experience hell. I remember I read a, an interview of John Fuchante, who was or is, I don't know, the lead guitarist of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And John Fuchante is just this, to me, is just this amazing genius musician. And so, he was telling, he was telling of a, an anecdote that was so funny. He said, well, one day a journalist asked me, how do I create and, and how do you create and how do you connect with your audience when you create? And he, and he said, I answered, basically, I have no audience. That was just the hell. I mean, it was wow. awful for him. People started, you know, being really mean and he had, awful reviews and and just media circus and a very hateful yeah. one and on his blog he, he tried to explain that he said you don't understand what I mean I mean that when you are an artist and and you want to be true to your art which is the reason why you're doing this you don't have an audience you right. have art you have art right. you have music and and because if you do have an audience, then you keep adapting yourself to all the people who are going to like your work today and despise you or your work tomorrow and stuff. And it's not about art anymore. It's not about music anymore. It's about pleasing people. And right. art is not about pleasing people. It's about elevating them. So to elevate them, you have to be in that space, you know, that I call it the uncorruptible space. And you have to be incorruptible. And it's difficult. You know, it's a posture that's really, really difficult to hold because, well, some of us, some of them get a lot of attention, a lot of recognition, and we need it. A lot of money. Oh, boy, we need money. And so what are you going to do? I mean, you're receiving money and attention and your material life is suddenly easier. So you want to give in to that and continue to do that. But it's in the end, it's going to hurt your creative calling. And since your creative calling is your life, it's going to hurt your life, too. Yeah. So, yeah. There's another aspect, too, of that that often doesn't get talked about as well. Like they like the audience wants you to stay in in this lens that they see you in not just in your work, but also as a human, like you're not allowed to be human. Like blues here in Charlotte had a discussion on his podcast about that, about he has a podcast with a few other poets who are incredible. Jay Ward, Jamal Cowan. They, they had, they had mentioned something about like he, he had been seen out somewhere and he had, he had done something and they were like, Oh my gosh. They were like in shock. They were like, I just can't believe you were there. I can't believe that you would do that and he's like I'm a human being like I'm (laughs) like I'm not allowed to like go to a strip club or do something like that like you know it's like it's just this weird and I've seen that too just in conversations at venues is like oh this this poet did this or or you know and I'm like yes because they're a human being they're gonna make mistakes they're not Sure. You know, I, I, it's so, I, when an audience idolizes someone, like whether that's through music or poetry or anything, it's like, 
it it's so dehumanizing yeah. to the person. It's like there is no room for error. It's like they they're they're not allowed to stumble, you know, and it's um, it's very interesting. I will say though that a very healthy poetry community is yeah. different. Like we've we've seen that here in, in Charlotte as well. Like we've we've had some poets here who have, you know, sometimes not been their best self and the poetry community has carried them through that. And I think that that's beautiful, and I would love to see that kind of dynamic m- more. But, you know, poets supporting poets, and I think that podcasts yeah. like this are important for that, just to put the discussion and the awareness and the and you know those those inner questions that we need to ask ourselves out there. I also feel like there, speaking to that, there was a poet and a artist in Charlotte, his name is John Love, and he's quite an amazing individual. And an organization I work for called Playing for Others got to interview him because we were going to create a poem with teens to honor him one night for an event that they do. And in the interview, John Love basically said, I, my job is to show up and create what the audience does with that is none of my business. And I love that. I love that it's like, it's that simple. Yeah. You, you just show up and you create and it, what happens to it after that is none of your business. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's this beautiful realization that when you try to control the outcome of your work, it's, it's like you're, <laughs> it's futile, right? It's like, yes, it is. It's futile. You're the only thing you can control is your creation of the thing. And then what happens to it after that is none of your business. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's almost oppressive for you to be like, this is how you're going to feel about my work because I said so. You know what I mean? But I I love how simply he put that. Sweet. Yeah, it's sweet. And it's wonderful that you created and that you're part of a community that supports poets. It's just because there's a lot of competition. You know, we're talking about fame. That's also a dynamic of fame. You know, now that you're in the spotlight, people are going to despise you. And so it's yeah, it's it's great. It's very inspiring, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So um, I have a few last questions for you. The last one is about harmony and your creative process. So um, how do you know you found harmony when you're channeling a poem? How do you know that this right here is good and it's done and it's ready to go out into the world and to touch people's hearts and minds? As a magician, personality, poetry type, I am when I know is when I feel like I'm being swooned by the words. So when I feel like I'm starting to be romanticized by the words, whether that's, whether that's, you know, if I'm writing about the highway or if I'm writing about a very emotional, politically charged moment and social justice, right? Anything like that. if, If I can feel myself being moved as I'm writing to take action, whether that's, you know, for example, like the two extremes that I like to give are, you know, uh, a poem that is focusing on the atmosphere of like the highway, right? And like yes. this feeling of freedom and this feeling of of beauty, being surrounded by beauty, right? So if I'm writing a poem like that and I feel like I want to get in the car or go make love to my fiance and like... <laughs> 
and, you know, pop the champagne and do all the things, right? <laughs> like, I know that's, that is, that, that I am, if I'm enjoying what I'm writing and I can, yeah. I can feel like something coming up inside of me. Yes. If I'm writing, and the other extreme of that is if I'm writing like, you know, I recently wrote a poem about working with the homeless population here in Charlotte and uh, a very profound moment had happened where this young boy had come out and we had a conversation and it was, it was just so, so heartfelt and jarring, right? Oh. As I was writing that poem, I could feel like from, from my navel up into my throat and into my eyes, like the tears welling up. I could feel, I could feel like, yes, we, like this, this drive of, of the words are going to instill action to do something. Right. So like I can feel this momentum that, and maybe that's what it really is now that I'm like verbally processing it. If I can feel momentum from what I'm writing, I know it's good because it's fueling me to do it's, it's inspiring me through the process of discovery and writing that it's fueling me to go do something with this. Yeah. So I think that's when I know that I, that I've got a good poem is when it energizes me and it, it, it instills momentum in me to, to therefore go forth and, and do so. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. And do you have a, a mythology symbol that inspires you or a spiritual story? I, I, I really, I really don't, but I have written a lot of poems about Icarus and about rewriting the narrative of Icarus because I feel like there's opportunity there for stories that have actually haven't been told around that story even though it's such an ancient story and so I've explored that a little bit about like almost like poets when they're put on a pedestal right and it's like you're going too high you're going too high kind of thing but also yeah just a lot of metaphor in Icarus's story and and rewriting the narrative around that about like it's it's not that it was this it's not that it was like this this greed to go higher, but it was like, this, this feels good. This is my calling. I'm going to go higher. And then what if he didn't fall? What if he became Saul, became the son, you know? So it's like this, this way to like reframe Icarus's story, I think is interesting. Spiritually for me, this, the greatest moment that has ever happened is me starting Gorilla Poets. And that was because it was the first time that I knew that by sharing my story, it saved someone else's life. That, that moment to me is so pivotal in my journey. And it was like, that to me was, was just everything when it comes to, wow, I knew it could save me. But now that this person has walked up and said that they're not going to take their own life because they heard that poem. Yes. Like now I know the true power of it. And I've always held on to that, that I've always held on to that. So like, to me, when poets come to me and they say, I don't think anyone's hearing me, I always tell them, you have no idea who's listening to you and who's not. Yeah. And you, you might be saving lives left and right, but you, and you might never know. 
but you need to keep showing up because it is possible and yeah. to and to cut yourself off from that could be detrimental whether you're on for for us as a society like re- regardless of whether or not you're on stage or not as long as you're putting your work out there and you're not hiding it under the bed like you know yeah get it out there get it yeah. out there because it literally could change someone's life it could change their viewpoint it could change their perspective on, on where they are yeah but that that's like my my spiritual moment that's happened but when it comes to like like a symbol in in literature and in mythology I I, I really think that Icarus's story is interesting to rewrite yeah yeah and and so I can't wait to read your version of Icarus story what you said about mythology mythology is also one of my obsessions and I think we, we, we get mythology wrong. Mythology is actually of the present. It has always been of the present because it talks about the journey of the human soul. And this is completely universal and it's, it will always be, you know, in, it will never be out. The, the challenges, the fear of death, the love, the, the hatred. All of it. And so, and I was listening to you while you were talking. You used so, so many beautiful symbols that actually are typical a mind who mythologizes. For instance, you said, uh, you're like the sun. And, and yes. And so um, I'm talking about the sun because I think the poet, being a poet is already a spiritual experience in itself. We have to go deeper into ourselves to come out with something new to we create ourselves, we recreate ourselves and we share that with people. And I think it's the same thing for artists. What's fascinating about poets is, is that they they behave like all these mythological figures in religious scriptures. So in the Bible, in the Veda, in the Quran, whatever, God creates with sound, with the word, all the time. And God is, you know, this weird being because we're not we're not sure he exists. We don't know he or she. And so he or she is visible, but at the same time is not. But still, God is the underlying principle or the underlying being, the underlying reality. So the poet is just like that. And I think this also explains why we doubt ourselves so much. We are always torn between the visible and the, and the invisible. People, mm. they are happy once we channel a poem. For them, they say, oh, that was just awesome. Give me more. And you go like, well, it comes, but, you know, it doesn't come like that. And when it comes, it's me manipulating some, something visible, like ethereal. And, and I cannot explain that to you. So you cannot order a poem like that, although you can, but you see what I'm getting at? It's, we manipulate a lot of invisible. And so this makes us really, really close to the divine in the mythological religions, I, uh, religious stories. I was thinking of Odin, Odin and Shiva, which to me are this, they are this, the same, the same archetype. And so Odin, who is the creator god in Norse mythology, did just amazing things just to extract wisdom from a giant 
who was living near a well somewhere in the universe. And so he went on a journey and he was ready to lose his eye. It's just something crazy, but he is already the creator of the universe. So you go like, why are you doing this? You are creating the universe. Where are you getting that wisdom? Why are you getting that wisdom from someone else? And it's a person, a, a being that's so ambiguous because he's ready because he's so, he craves wisdom and he's ready. There's a story that I really love where, so this giant at some point dies and he lost his head. And so Odin heard that the giant died. And so he travels and take back the head of Mimir. And he decides to keep the head of wisdom for himself and to revive wisdom. And so the way he's going to revive wisdom is chanting, is chanting words and and offering, you know, herbs and perfume. And so it's just so beautiful. And to me, it's just the... The, the symbol of what a poet is. We revive wisdom. And so, and, and yeah, and we create with the word. And Shiva is like that too. It's an archetype that's very complicated to grasp. He is love and Shiva means the benevolent. But there are a lot of stories about him where you read them and you say, are you sure you're benevolent? <laughs> <laughs> so he has these many facades or visages to himself and one of them is Rudra and Rudra is anger like pure anger and it destroys and and is the howler you know he, he cries and it, it's just awful but at the same time is soft and sweet and is the incarnation of wisdom and the supreme reality in, in, in Hindu philosophy so all these archetypes, the creator gods, they really resemble the, the poet. And to me, they talk about the poet's experience, what we're here on earth to do, how we create, and why the word is so important, why it matters. So yeah, I'm, there's something yeah. I truly believe um, there's something really, really powerful in just like saying the right thing at the right time can unlock tons of doors yeah like I, I truly believe that and it but it's it's something that's very you know it's verbal it's it's an act it's uh you know and even i i even even with with music and with visual art like it's still it's like being exposed to something at the right time you know can be can can just turn everything on you know and i i think what you said too about like you know, some some people call it the divine download when it's like those poems come, right? Yeah. And I, <laughs> I have a phrase. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a huge believer that you know that current is constantly there, and you can train yourself to reach in and out of yeah. it, so you can sure. continuously feel that when yeah. every time you write. But I think the key is making sure that it becomes a life practice, so that you are incorporating. Yeah, you're incorporating it into your life, so that. So maybe you're not, so it's that visible and invisible, right? Well, you're, now you're taking that feeling and that practice into the invisible. So for example, like sometimes when I'm driving or, or whatever, if I'm out in nature or even just in the city, yeah. I will, I will pick a point around me and I will look at it and I will try to explain it in my head. So it's like I'm playing poetry 
even when I'm not writing it, right? Sure. So it's like sure. I'm continuously yeah. connecting to these points around me yeah. and that becomes my life practice that is tra- transformed into my writing practice, you yeah. know? And in that way, you can cross the line bet- or connect the lines between visible and invisible. And invisible, sure. Yeah, so like there was a boxer who talked about I can't remember his name but he he talked about being in New York City when it was really crowded and he was like trying to get through the street and he stopped one day and realized that his boxing techniques he was actually using to weave through the crowd and that's when he realized that like even he's boxing even when he's not boxing you know and like how it has become like something so ingrained in him that it it's become a life practice to where he uses these tools and these skills outside of the ring and and there I I believe that poets have that ability too that there's something in the way you write in your process like how you start a poem how you finish it you know like even before you put pen to paper like what happened prior like to to trigger it to to come you know um, where was the connection made is what what I like to, to yeah. envision it as like where did you connect to the thing the thought the the environment whatever it is you know yes and yeah. then practicing that but yeah. I I do believe that that there there is something so so beautiful in those those stories and how they can represent artists today definitely definitely yes. you're yes. making me want to go back and read about <laughs> <laughs> wonderful it's wonderful. I thought a, a Congolese poet who was a, a genius. His name is Sonny Laboutancy. And he said, I carry poetry with me. Poetry is always with me, which is a beautiful thing. And, and each time I think about it, I said to myself, poetry is a dimension of life, which explains why some of us are poets and some of us are not. It's just a dimension of life. It's just this particular perception that the poet has and, you know, it connects the dots and, and, and it channels something and then it comes out as a song or, or a prose or a word, a poem. And so it's a beautiful dimension of life. And, and this conversation was just so awesome. <laughs> Thank you very much, Shane. I do have. This time, it's really the last one question. What do you need? Oh, that's a good one. This conversation has been awesome. This has been a beautiful way to start my day. Thank you so yes. much for having yeah. me on, You're welcome. on the show. Thank you. Yes, I, I, I love uh, your podcast. So definitely thank you, thank um, you for having me. What do I need? I, I feel like I've done good here, especially here lately with like finding a balance. I think what I need is I definitely feel the pull to have more exploration. Like I, I believe that especially as a poet, if you want to write about life, you have to go live it. And I, I really feel pulled to travel, even if it's not very far right now because of, you know, everything going on. I, I still feel like I, I want to have some new experiences. So I feel that. I feel like the need to have some new experiences okay. to go to places I've not gone before and okay. and really broaden my writing and as well as my perception that way. Yeah. So yeah. I would say that is what I need. I need to travel a little bit more. <laughs>